Well, right, it's a big week for us. Uh, we're starting Vacation Bible School on Tuesday uh, to Friday. And so we're going to pray later in the service for our youth and our people who will be volunteering in that. And then in a week, we're going to be sending a group of us on a missions trip to Brooklyn, New York. So there are some things just to be in prayer for. In fact, why don't we just pray as we as we look into God's Word a little bit more closely this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are God who loves the unlovely. I pray that you open up your Word to us today. Encourage us and help us to call on your name. Lord, we give you thanks and praise in your name. Amen. The average uh, marriage in the United States, at least, I mean, couldn't find stats for Canada, but the average marriage in the United States divorces after, or sorry, the average divorce comes after eight years of marriage. They used to have a phrase called the seven-year itch, right? And it's interesting, the seven-year itch, where you start to, your eyes starts to wander, you start to think, well, the honeymoon's over. And, uh, and then the average divorce happens in year eight. But uh, some celebrities are notorious for having even shorter marriages. Uh, Kim Kardashian was married to, to Chris Humphreys for 72 days. Uh, Britney Spears, the pop star at the turn of the century, was married for uh, 55 hours. That's a short honeymoon. And, um, but uh, the shortest honeymoon I can imagine, I think the, the record for the shortest honeymoon uh, is in the story that we just read. And Jacob woke up the next morning, and I love how the Bible so eloquently and concisely puts it, behold, there was Leah. And uh, that honeymoon came to a very quick, quick end. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about marriage, uh, whether we're talking about a, a new job, a new opportunity, a new course of study. We often talk about that honeymoon phase not just those, you know, that, that we you spend in Cancun on your honeymoon. We talk about that honeymoon phase, that first, that first phase of your life, uh, of your new opportunity, your new endeavor, when you know everything seems to be, you know, uh, in Japan they have this funny term called pika pika. It was bright and shiny, right? That pika pika moment of your honeymoon phase, and and then the luster often wears off, right? We talk about the honeymoon ends. And so my message today is actually, um, what happens when the honeymoon ends? It's the, the title of my message. We're going to be looking at really three, three, uh, <laughs> technology. There we go. Yeah, just click on that and then it's work. There we go. So today we're going to basically look at three things. We're going to look at how the honeymoon ends for some people. We're going to look at why the honeymoon ends for most people. And then what do we do when the honeymoon ends? Uh, we're going to look at the honeymoon ending for three people in this. In these chapters, we're looking at Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, and, and their different experiences of having this luster, this honeymoon ending in their lives. So that's where, where we're going to be going today. I mean, first, we're going to be looking at, at Jacob. And for each one of these people, I kind of ask, you know, what do they want? What is it that they're hoping for? What are they looking for in, you know, this strange story of this marriage, of this family? And so Jacob, what does he want? Now, some of us read this story and we fall into the same trap. I think Jacob does. We read this story, we read, uh, for example, in uh, verse 28 of chapter 29, and it says, And Jacob loved Rachel. And we think of this as being this romantic uh, story that Jacob loves her with this romantic love, 
But I want to look a little bit at this love that Jacob had for Rachel. Because I'm so like even in English, but Hebrew is like English in this. So when we say I love, like that's a big word. And it has a lot of meanings, right? You can say our language, and in Hebrew as well, you can say, God is love, which is one of the most, you know, sublime, amazing, impressive sentences you could say, that God is love, that love is defined by by who God is, but we can also say, I would love to have a pizza later, right? We can use that word love, and we can mean completely different things by it, so the word love could could range from God's infinite affection, self-giving affection for his people to, you know, the lazy glutton saying, I, I just love a, a pizza. And so when we're looking at Jacob's love for Rachel, that's the question. Does Jacob love Rachel with a God love or a pizza love? All right? So you can say Jacob loved Rachel. But so on what basis, so, so how would we discern how would we discern whether Jacob loves Rachel with a God's type of love or a pizza love? Well, let's look at what, how, how does he choose Rachel? On what basis? Well, the text is pretty clear, uh, both in what it says and what it doesn't say. I mean, at the uh, so at the beginning of the chapter, I forgot to put the verses up here, but at the beginning of the chapter, Jacob meets Rachel at a well, right? So this is where he first encounters his relative, his, 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 his relative Rachel, he encounters her at a well, and it should remind us of a different story. It was only a few chapters back in Genesis where where Jacob's grandfather sent a servant looking for a son for Jacob's father. And if you remember that servant, he also met that, that, that woman who he was looking for at the well. But if you remember that story, that story, the servant was saturated in prayer. Right? That, that was a... We, we actually remarked a lot on the the godly nature of that search for the spouse, and how it was just saturated in prayer, of how when he saw this woman, he, actually even before he saw the woman, he prayed, and he prayed that he might recognize this woman by her character, and that's how he, he knew Rachel was the one she offered to water, you know, his whole flock of camels and things like that. So it's very significant that Jacob, when he sees Rebecca at the well, he does, he does none of that. There's no prayer here. There's no hunt for character here. So by what the text does not say, we get a little bit of a sense of what sort of love Jacob loves Rachel with. But we don't have to make assumptions from the text. Uh, the text becomes pretty clear as to what learned. We're having troubles here. There we go. As to when the honeymoon ends for Jacob. There we go. When he's making this negotiation with, with Laban over Reef, over, uh, Laban says to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages will be. And the, and the text is very clear. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. Now the text, uh, Hebrew is kind of funny. Uh, they, they do a lot, Hebrew commentators do a lot with the sounds of names. And so, uh, subtly, the name Rachel means you lamb. Not like you lamb, but like you, female lamb, like beautiful little lamb. The the name Leah sounds like the Hebrew word for cow. So Jewish commentators, you know, comment on those uh, that significance. But, you know, the text actually comes right out and tells us. Uh, Leah 
and, and a lot of people, the commentators tend to really understand this, is either to say Leah lacked a luster in her eyes, or um, Leah was not was not easy on the eyes. <laughs> type of thought, right? So Leah, something about Leah, but what, what we t- were told about Rachel, what attracts Jacob to Rachel is it says she was beautiful in form and appearance. Rachel said to have a great figure, beautiful in form and appearance. She had a beautiful face. She's absolutely gorgeous. And not, I mean, obviously there's nothing wrong in noticing the attractiveness of people. That is that is often and nearly always what, what first catches our eye about someone. But yet it's also said that beauty is at times only skin deep. And, and so let's probe a little deeper. Is this God's type of love or is it pizza type of love? Does Jacob spend the next seven years, you know, getting to know Rachel or Rebecca as a person? Is he interested in her, you know, to know her character? Well, let's see. Let's go probe a little deep, uh, a little deeper. Is he growing for tender love for her? Is he digging below the surface? Look at verse 21. Here's where Jacob approaches Laban to ask for her hand in marriage. Verse 21 says, Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Um, that's not how you ask for someone's hand in marriage. That's not how you approach. I've got two daughters. That's not going to work. He doesn't even name her. You know, it's, it's as if he's still seeing her as this object of his fantasy that he's pursuing, and he's pursuing her with this purpose. Give me my wife that I might go into her. Uh, there's a Hebrew scholar, Robert Altair, who says, this statement is so blunt, so graphic, so sexual, so over-the-top and inappropriate and non-customary that over the centuries, Jewish commentators have had to do all kinds of backpedaling to explain this. The narrator is showing us a man driven by and overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for one woman. So make no mistake, when I talk about the difference between God's, you know, God love and pizza love, I'm talking about the quality of love, but not about the intensity of love. You can have intense pizza love, right? You can have intense pizza love. Like, no one can say that Jacob's pizza love for Rachel wasn't intense. The text goes over, you know, out of its way time and time again to kind of show how how intense Jacob's desire for Rachel was. Uh, like, so the story with the well and the shepherds, and they say, well, we all usually wait for one another. We all come together before we remove the stone. And and then Jacob sees her, and he's like, stone off. You know, he's like, the Jewish commentators talk about, he's like filled with almost like supernatural type of strength because of his intensity of his pizza love for Rachel. The uh, the, the price that, that Laban... That he, that he offers to Laban. I'll work, I'll work seven years for her. Was, if you figured what the days, a day's wage was, and then did the math, this is far more than a normal price that you would pay a father-in-law, a father-in-law as a dowry. He weeps and kisses upon their knee. 
He doesn't love Rachel with that quality of love that lays itself down for her. He's not loving her with this God type of love that seeks for good or that displays God's love. He wants her beauty. He wants her body. He wants his fantasy. There's a book uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. He talks about different types of loves. He doesn't call them God's love or pizza. He uses the, you know, that ancient word for them. So he's speaking about eros. And he says, and this is a passage that really spoke to me even as a, a teenager. He says, He says, to use the most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude toward her five minutes after fruition. One does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. So what's Jacob's attitude toward Rebecca after after he gets what he came for? But we don't have to guess, we, we see this. There you go. It says in, in chapter 30, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Again, a very, very blunt and crass statement. This family is of one that does not speak to one another with tenderness or politeness but one that just kind of yells at each other. And now I'm going to pause here because we have a story. Again, we should be calling back to some of the stories we've already, we've already read. We have another instance, in fact, just a generation before, where Rebecca, Jacob's, or Rachel, Jacob's mother, was also buried. And, and, and she also approaches her husband, and in Genesis 25, we see what Isaac does. Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was buried. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. So, so Rebecca is bearing, and, his, and her husband is praying for her. Rachel is bearing. She goes, give me children or I die. And Jacob comes back and says, am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? A person with pizza love for their spouse will get irritated and defensive when they approach him with their troubles. Like, Jacob's like, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for the fantasy of Rachel. I did not sign up for the reality. Right? Jacob wants the fantasy suite. He wants the trophy wife, the cover girl, without the struggles. And he thinks that he gets what he's looking for, right? Like, when he goes to bed that night on his wedding night, he thinks he's gotten everything he's wanted. He's gotten Rachel the beauty. And so he goes, and remember he goes and approaches Laban and says, give me my wife, and I'm going to go into her. And Laban then gathers together all the people of the place and made a feast. Literally the word is a drinking party, which might explain what happens next. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zillah to his daughter Leah to be a servant. And in the morning, behold... It was Leah. And so obviously, this is where the honeymoon ends for Jacob, right? This is where it's over. Like, what? He's been tricked. Life has been unfair to him, and so he does what we do. He searches for the person to blame outside of himself, and, and here there's an obvious target. 
So he's furious and he confronts Laban. This, this is my pointer at Nathan. Here, I'll get the ears so you can see me better. <laughs> so he confronts Laban. What is this you've done to me? Didn't I serve you? Didn't I serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, It's not so dumb in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the leap for this one, and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Now, think about this. Would you accept this explanation from Laban? You wake up in the morning with the wrong sister, and you go to your father-in-law, and you say, why did you do this? Why did you deceive me? And he says to you, oh, well, we don't do things like that around here. It's our custom to give away the older before the younger. And then you're like, okay. Like, you wouldn't accept that. But Jacob goes, okay, and he goes to work for Laban again for another seven years. It's suspicious that Jacob, that, remember what we know about Jacob. What is Jacob's core character so far? He's the heel grabber, right? He's the usurper. He's the one that arranges the scenarios and the situations to get what he wants. And it's amazing that suddenly Jacob's like, okay, that sounds good, Laban, I'll do that. Why does, what happens to Jacob where suddenly he's just okay with this? I think what's happening is, there's a couple of important words here. First, Jacob says to him, why did you deceive me? He uses the word that's only used a couple other times in Genesis. And it's used up Isaac, when he says, your son, your brother Jacob has come and deceived us. So it's a callback. What's, what's the core character of Jacob that we've known so far? Is Jacob the deceiver? And so now that word is on his lips. Saying, how can you do this to me? But even more is the second part here. Sorry, go back there, Nathan. Go back. Go back. But even more, Laban says to him, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now, I don't know how much or if Jacob has described to Laban his relationship with Esau and why he's on the run. We don't know that. But we know what has happened in Jacob's past. The author of the text knows, Moses knows what has happened in Jacob's past. And so what is happening is here is this is a strong rebuke. Jacob's whole life has been about setting the younger over the older. Right? He came out the heel grabber, the younger trying to pull down the older. He 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 sold uh, he got Esau to serve sell his birthright for the pot of stew, the younger usurping the older. He he disguised himself and deceived his father to get the blessing the younger over the older, and now it's all just blowing up in his face. And those words must have cut him to the heart. Jacob here, we don't do that. We don't put the younger over the firstborn. And so Jacob does what many of us do when the honeymoon ends. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's a job, whether it's another opportunity we've been pursuing, when, when everything blows up in our face, many of us say, I guess that is what I deserve. 
Instead of continuing to pursue God love, we content ourselves with selfish pizza love. And we say, this is all I'm ever going to know. This is all I ever, this is what I deserve. And we consign ourselves and we say, all right, seven more years, 15 years later, get back to work. But Jacob's not the only person to whom the honeymoon ended that morning. The honeymoon ended for Leah. Right? The honeymoon ends for Leah. Leah woke up to a nightmare of her own. There's no indication in the text or in the story that Leah went along with this or that she knew what Laban was doing. In fact, Leah was maybe for seven years thinking, okay, well, this is our custom. Maybe the custom's been explained to Jacob, and she just thought, all right, well, this is natural that I would be given to Jacob as his wife. That's the custom. She may have known that Jacob preferred her sister's beauty, but she went to the tent that night assuming that Jacob had consented to marry her. After all, it was more common in those days to marry according to custom rather than love. And perhaps Leah assumed that they would grow to love one another after they're married. What is Leah desiring? Leah desires to be loved. And you can see this by the names she gives her children. The names she gives her children are getting more and more painful as we go through the story. So the Lord saw that Leah was hated. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affection, now my husband will love me. But just think of the sadness and the sorrow in that story. You know, she gets to name her children. Her first child is maybe now. Maybe now my husband will love me. She woke up in the tent. Behold, it was Leah. She knew her husband's affections and fantasies were set on her sister. But she thinks having this child, even now her husband will turn and give her the attention and the affection she craves. But she doesn't. And so she has another son. She can see again and more of son. And said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. She calls him Simeon. That sounds like he hears. And then this is the one that, that gets me. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And she calls his name Levi. Now maybe my husband will attach himself to me. With every son born to her, Leah becomes even more undone. And she names her three sons confessing her desperation and her longing to be loved. Every pregnancy, imagine every pregnancy carrying with it a new hope. Every single one of these pregnancies, a new hope. Oh, maybe now my husband will love me. Maybe now he will be attached to me. And then every birth, it goes back to the same. Jacob going off to Rachel's tent every night. Leah's cry is the cry of a man or woman whose spouse lives distracted in the fantasy world of internet pornography or loses themselves in sexual or romantic fantasy. See, we can be like, man, this is a weird culture where this man would like consent to marry two wives. This is not uncommon in our culture today. We just don't marry them. We might not even know them, but we live in that fantasy world of longing for the fantastic desire. 
This is why it's important, young people and married men and women, this is why it's important to protect your eyes, protect your holiness, to, to put filters in your house, to put filters on your mind. Leah's cry is also the cry of every employee taken for granted, while others who are more charismatic or friendly with the boss are promoted. Leah just desperately wants to be, to gain attention, to gain affection. And then there's Rachel. What is the high end for Rachel? What does Rachel want? It's interesting, in the text we're given no indication of what of Rachel's feelings for Jacob. In fact, the only the only interaction we have of Rachel to Jacob is give me children or I'll die. We get no hints that she's overtaken by desire like Jacob or craving love like her sister. At one point in chapter 31, Rachel and Leah say about this situation, our father just sold us to you. And Rachel's actually listed first as the one who says it. So I don't even know if Rachel likes Jacob, to be honest. What does Rachel want? I think probably the, the best indication of what Rachel wants is found in verse twenty, uh, verse 8 of chapter 30. Of chapter 30. It says that uh, she's the youngest son through her servant. And Rachel says, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Right? It's not like I want my husband to love me. It's I want to beat my sister. Rachel wants victory. Like she wants to win. She can't stand second place. And chapter 30, we didn't read the whole chapter before, but chapter 30 is this ongoing Cold War that progresses into nuclear war between these two sisters, mainly at Rachel's instigation. She It's not enough that Rachel has her husband's desire and his affections. She has to win over her sister at all costs. She can't stand it that Leah is bearing Jacob's children and she declares war. And so first she goes up to her husband and says, Give me children or I die! And yells them. And then when he says there's nothing wrong with him... She basically re- she basically replays all the greatest hits of the people that came before her, right? So she then takes her servant and gives her to Jacob, just like Sarah did with Abraham, right? And then later in the chapter, there's this issue with the mandrakes. So the mandrakes had some; they, they thought the mandrakes would make you fertile. And so Rachel's like, "Give me those mandrakes! I need those mandrakes!" And her sister's like, "Well, I'll sell them to you." And it's just replaying again Esau's sin, where Esau sold his birthright for the soup. And she's doing the same thing for the mandrakes, and it doesn't work out for her either. She gets the mandrakes, and Leah gets two more children. Like, she keeps on losing to her sister. We can't all be Donald Trump winning all the time. That's a joke. And if you're, maybe there's some of you who are wired like this, and it's really caused you distress in your spiritual life. Because you find in yourself an ultra-competitiveness that you have to always win. And guess what? Life doesn't do that. And so when others triumph over you, or life triumphs over you, you feel defeat and shame. And so this is what we've seen. We've seen the honeymoon end for these people. We see Jacob chasing the fantasy of beautiful beauty and sex. And he wakes up in a different reality. We see Leah craving attention and affection. And she wakes up to a distracted husband. And you see Rachel, who needs to win at all costs, 
and she wakes up in a losing battle to her sister. So that's how the honeymoon ends for some people. Now we got to look at the second question. Why does the honeymoon end? I said for most people. I'd say for all people. For all people all the time, the honeymoon ends. Why does the honeymoon end? First, the honeymoon ends, because this is why we looked at this idea of what do they want. Each one of those people we asked, what do they want out of this? And that's why the honeymoon ends for all people, because we bring into whatever new endeavor we're pursuing our sinful expectations. We bring into our marriage or our job or our parenting or whatever it is, our expectations that cannot be met because they're they're misaligned expectations. The honeymoon is over as soon as we enter into the picture because we enter into it as selfish, self-centered human beings. I've heard one person say this about the church, about looking for that perfect honeymoon church. And they say, the problem is there's no such thing as a perfect church because as soon as I walk into it, I bring my stuff into it. And we do that with a marriage. And we do that with a job. We bring ourselves and our selfishness and our sinful expectations into our endeavors. We chase the fantasy. We crave attention and we seek to use other people to win. There's so many other ways. Like, those are just three. Like, these three are just illustrations from this text. There are so many other ways that we bring into whatever endeavor we're pursuing the the seeds of our own destruction. So it's the first reason why the honeymoon ends. We bring our sinful expectations in with us. The second reason is other people disappoint us when they fail to meet our sinful expectations. Here's the problem. I I don't only bring in my selfishness and my sinfulness into the marriage or the job or whatever. Everybody else does as well. And so when we come into the honeymoon phase, expecting the honeymoon period to last, and then we realize not only does my sin bring in the seeds of destruction, but they will never match and meet my expectations either, that we're disappointed. Ernest Becker was a secular man. He was actually an atheist, but he won the Pulitzer Prize in the 1970s book for his book, The Denial of Death. The book is about how secular people deal with the fact that they don't believe in God. And he, as an atheist, is dealing with this. And he says one of the main ways secular culture has dealt with the vacuum of God's absence is through sex and romance. He says our secular culture has loaded its desire for the transcendent into romance and love. But this is what he says the problem is. The problem is, in his words, he's an atheist, he says, the problem is no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. However much we idolize him, the love partner, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. And as he is our ideal measure of value, this imperfection falls back upon us. If your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. He, he, he concludes, human partners can't do this. It's, it's what I've often said about that, the, the, that chapter in Genesis 3 when God curses the land, he curses the serpent, curses the land, and then he speaks to the man and the woman. And to Eve, the woman, he says, um, I will greatly in pain, increase your pain in childbearing, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will master you. 
And you think, what is God telling her? And I've shared with this with you before. I think what God is doing there is just saying, on account of human sin, and account of the fallen creation, parenting and marriage will never bring about the security and happiness you desire. You are living in a fallen world, you're living in a sinful planet with other sinful people, and if you look to them, your marriage, your job, your community, as your savior, you will be disappointed. Tim Keller puts it in a sermon that was the sermon that that children's story of the Bible was based off of. Tim Keller writes, what does this show us? Listen, I love Leah, I really do. I've been thinking about this text for a long time, and I love her and want to protect her. So he's like, I'm not saying anything bad about Leah. I hope you don't think I'm being mean to her and what I'm trying to say, but I want you to know that when you get married, no matter how great you think the marriage is going to be, when you get a career, no matter how great you think your career is going to be, when you go off to seminary, no matter how much you think it's going to make you into a man or a woman of God, in the morning it is always Leah. You think you're going to bed with Rachel, and in the morning it is always Leah. And so people, when we put people into that place of what it is, is idolatry, they disappoint. Because there's no Savior but God. Thirdly, the honeymoon ends because the fallen world stands poised to exploit us. We have to understand that there are forces in this world and there are people in this world. It's not just that we all bring in our imperfections and our sin to relationships. It's that other people may and might be out to get us like Laban was. Laban, uh, remember in the text, this is not in my notes, but there's a little detail in the text. It's like when Laban hears that his relative has come from Canaan to the well looking for a wife, Laban runs out to meet him and kisses him and says, come into my house. Why does he do that? Laban was there like 40 years ago. Laban is uh, Jacob's mom's brother. And so 40 years ago when the servant came from Canaan looking for a wife with all those camels and all that gold and all those riches, Laban ran out to meet a man and was like, and it says, he saw the riches. And so Laban now hears there's another man from Canaan from our relatives looking for a wife, and Laban's like, oh, yeah. And he runs out and he must have been a little bit disappointed. Where are the camels, Jacob? Jacob's a fugitive running for his life. Jacob didn't come with any gold or camels or anything like that, but Laban is looking, how can I exploit? And that's the one characteristic you're going to see in Laban time and time again, is how can I exploit my relative Jacob? Well, it's not only true that the world stands poised to exploit us, but we have an enemy who is a greater deceiver than Laban. Do not be deceived, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. So the honeymoon ends because we bring in our own sinful expectation. Our honeymoon ends because a fallen person can never meet everything we are desiring of them to meet in our lives, and the world and the devil conspire against us. The honeymoon is going to end. So what do we do? What do we do when the honeymoon ends? First is look for God. This two chapters is messed up. These two chapters are messed up. It was against God's revealed will for a man to take two wives. The polygamy of the Old Testament was not ever was not ever offered as a solution. It was off, it was critiqued as a fallen sinful 
uh, misconstrual of marriage. So this chapter is messed up. But God is actually still present working in this messed up family. That's actually part of the whole. So there's two times where God shows up. In the chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, the Lord saw that Rachel was hated and opened her womb. In chapter 30, verse 22, the Lord God remembered Rachel. That even in the dysfunction of this family, even in the sinfulness of Laban's exploitation, of Jacob's expectations, God still was working his purposes out through this messed up family. And so first, when the honeymoon ends, look up. Where is God here? And I believe you won't find he's far away. It's often through, C.S. Lewis also said, suffering is is God's megaphone into our life. So when the honeymoon ends, when everything comes crashing down, look up. Where's God? I'll bet he's still there. Second, consider his salvation hope. God's intervention ultimately culminates in two sons that are highlighted by the text. The first is Leah's uh, last son that was born in chapter 30. Chapter 30 kind of comes into a climax with the birth of Judah. And then the whole episode with the warring sister ends with Rachel giving birth to her son named Joseph. Now, if this were any regular family, I could promise you that God is still present, that God is still working his purposes out. I could promise you in your dysfunction, in your family, in your mess, in your crazy employment, God is still working, God is still present. But I can guarantee in this family, God's salvation, hope, was working and weaving its way through all of this mess. Joseph and Judah become the sons of focus for the rest of Genesis. Judah is going to, just as that children's story says, Judah is going to be the forerunner to the actual Savior, Jesus Christ. This dysfunction of this family moves salvation's story further and closer to the actual true hope of the nations. It moves us closer to Jesus. So Judah is born through Leah, the one that nobody wanted. Joseph, although he's not the son of the promise, Joseph in the book of Genesis becomes the greatest picture of Jesus that you'll see in the Old Testament. He is the one who is betrayed. He is the one who is hated by his brothers. He is the one who's who's thrown into the pit. He is the one who is dead, and then he's the one who rises again to prominence and kingship in the nation of Egypt. And so you get Judah, who's actually the forerunner of the Messiah. You get Joseph, who's actually the picture of Messiah. And Joseph and Judah are coming in to focus. They're coming into being as human beings through this mess and the dysfunction of this family. And so when the honeymoon's ends, look for God. Where is God present? The text tells us God never left this family. Look for God. Look for his salvation hope. And although in the Old Testament you only have types and shadows, and now in history I can declare to you, there is hope. The story that started back in Genesis has progressed in history to point to Jesus Christ. 
And so maybe you're in the mess of your life right now. Maybe the honeymoon has ended, and maybe that megaphone of suffering is blaring in your ear. I'll tell you there is hope, and his name is Jesus. And third and finally, sorry, next one. Find your stability and future in him. Like Leah at one point gets it. At one point Leah gets it. At the end of chapter 30, Leah gets it. She conceived and bore a son, and she said, remember this is after that she named the three other ones, or maybe my husband will love me. She conceived and she bears a son, and then in chapter 30, she said, chapter 29, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And at least at that moment in her life, she got it. She got the picture. And when the honeymoon ends, we look for where God is, and the honeymoon ends, we, we put our we put our trust in and consider salvation so and when the honeymoon's ends, we find our stability, our security, and our future in Him. I don't know where you're at in your life right now today. I don't know when the wheels have come off for you. I don't know when you woke up and you said, Behold, it's Leah. But I do know this. We serve a God. We serve a Savior who is trustworthy and secure. This time, this time, in this moment, in this age, in your life, that your hope in the Lord. Everyone who cries out to him will not be disappointed. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the story of this messed up family. God, we, uh, we come to you in our crises, we come to you in our cries, and we pray, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to see your goodness. Help us to see your love. Help us to see your grace. Help us to see that, Lord, marriage, work, life, is hard because we make a mess of it. It's hard because other people make a mess of it. It's hard because we have an enemy, the devil, who, who comes into our life and, and he seeks to, to, to kill and to destroy. But God, you are the secure and faithful one. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to offer forgiveness of sins, to show us a new way, and, and to give us the promise that someday he's going to return and make all things new. So, Lord, let us clutch and cling on to those promises when we face situations in which the honeymoon is. We need to pray. Amen. We're going to move to a time of response. Um, so Dylan, the worship team, are going to lead us in some songs. You can remain seated during those songs. It's harder to see the screen when we're standing. Um, but take some time. Reflect. Call on the name of the Lord. Sing out with us. Um, during the second or third song, I'm going to be passing around the elements of the Lord's Supper. That is for those uh, we, we, we celebrate and remember uh, the Lord's work in our salvation. So if you're here today, if you're a Christian, if you profess your faith publicly for baptism, you're welcome to partake with us. Just, if you're here, you're not yet a Christian or you haven't yet uh, joined us in baptism, just pass the trays along with us. Also, if you're here today and that message called out to you, if you're here today and God's megaphone suffering has been shouting at you and you need to put your hope in the Lord, I'd love for you to just come up either during the music or after the service. I'd love to pray with you and chat with you. But I'll turn, uh, turn over to Dylan and the worship team.